Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a dark scene here in John chapter 20. There is a woman in a garden. There are angels. There is a man. There is a tree. And as we look at all of these different things, we, we see that it evokes the garden at the beginning of time. But in very dark and somber strokes. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. There is the darkness of death in this place. There is that tree of death which torturously sapped the life of the last Adam. There is a man who, as far as Mary is concerned, is in a tomb. He is a corpse. That's what she's looking for. And this whole scene is a reminder of the Word of God in that first garden so long ago. If you sin, you shall surely die. And then reading through those genealogies shortly after Genesis chapter 3, we we read that horrible refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's been happening for thousands of years to this point. Over and over, from generation to generation, people are reminded of the words of God to fallen man. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so in this garden graveyard, there is an atmosphere of despair and disappointment and everything is dark and all seems lost and there might as well be that sign over the entrance which is recorded in Dante's Inferno, that sign over the entrance to hell, abandon all hope ye who enter here. Because the disciples are hopeless. And on this same day, a little later on in the day, the disciples walking along the way to Emmaus will tell the risen Lord, they will tell him, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But our hopes were dashed. Now we know the rest of the story. We know the next chapters. We live a lot of chapters later in this story, but Mary didn't know, and the disciples didn't know on this resurrection morning. So she's weeping there. She's standing there weeping. Look at verse 11. She's distraught. Jesus had driven seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. He had saved her from the oppression of the powers of darkness, and Mary had faithfully followed the Lord, ministering to him with other women, supporting him financially out of their own resources. And Mary and the other women were there at the crucifixion and at the burial. And now on this first day of the week, as she comes to bring some more spices with the other women, it seems that the powers of darkness had triumphed over him at the cross. And her life is literally a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. 
Because of what use is a dead redeemer? Things were looking so good. Things were just getting started, but they didn't finish well. The rabbi, the master, lies dead in Mary's mind. And to add insult to injury, it seems as though his grave has been desecrated by grave robbers because it's wide open when it shouldn't be. Brothers and sisters, often in the way that God works in this world, it is at the time of greatest catastrophe that he works his greatest acts of redemption. That's often God's modus operandi when things look absolutely hopeless and lost and there's no way out. That's when he brings salvation. And you think of the people of Israel having left Egypt and they were being pursued by the armies of Pharaoh and there they were with the sea in front of them and the the hosts of Egypt behind them and they were stuck and there was no way out and all was lost. And it is at that moment that God worked mighty salvation for his people. He opened up the sea and he erased the enemy. Now the same thing is happening on a cosmic scale because the crucifixion and the death of our Lord seemed to be the triumph of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. But actually, what seems to be the worst defeat, God turns around and makes it into something which brings us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens, look at verse 1, this happens on the first day of the week. That's not, that's not by, by chance. Because the universe, the world began on the first day of the week. Remember Genesis chapter 1? It was on the first day. It was on a Sunday. that God began the work of creation. And he said, let there be light. And now in the darkness of this garden in Gethsemane, in the darkness... The light of the world bursts out of the grave and the last Adam comes out of the earth, not as the object of an act of creation, but as the subject of an act of destruction. He has destroyed the power of death. He gets out. Look at verse 9. The scripture said that he must rise. And that verb means rise as in what you did this morning, many of you. You just got up. You just stood up. That's what Jesus did. He got up from the grave. Peter preaches about this on Pentecost Sunday. He says, death could not hold him. Had no power. Because this is the one that Hebrews speaks about, Hebrews 7, 16. This is the one who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's Jesus' claim to the priesthood. He has an indestructible life. 
He cannot see corruption. He is the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies, also the one we sang about in in Psalm 16. He is the one who said to the sisters of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we know way more than Mary knows at this moment. You know how a kaleidoscope works? You, you put it to your eye and you point it at a light source and, and you turn it or you twist it. And as you turn, all these different gorgeous, rich patterns and connections show themselves in different configurations. And you change the angle a little bit and there are new patterns and new connections. And so we can do that with this text. Just look at it from a slightly different angle. There's a garden. And there is a gardener. There's a woman. And there are angels. This is not just evoking the paradise of the fall in dark and deathly brushstrokes. But as the sun rises on the first day of the week, a new world is dawning and humanity is taking a cosmic U-turn because a man has come back from the dead. And you may say, well, that's not such a big deal because men, people have come back from the dead at other times in recorded history before this, and that's true. But they came back from the dead only to die again. This man comes back from the dead to live forever. And so here we are, millennia after that curse on Adam, fallen Adam, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of people dying and returning to dust and, and tasting the bitter truth of the, of the, of the word of God that, that the wages of sin is death. And all those connected to the first Adam, all those connected to him, though they live, yet shall they die. Death comes to all men. But here is the last Adam. And he proclaims that all those united to me, though they die, yet shall they live. He he turns things upside down. The, the, the fall actually turned things upside down. The fall put the things that are supposed to be up down and things that are supposed to be down up. And so the fall made heaven the worst thing and earthly things the best things. And everyone ends up with what they seek. And so if you seek things of this earth, if you seek the things of this fallen world, you end up in the earth. If those are the highest things for you, that's where you end up, in the ground, dead. But now Jesus has turned things the right way up. Earth is down, heaven's up. And in his power, we seek the things that are above. Jesus gets up and moves out of the grave, and you can see in our chapter, in our text, the, the grave 
cloths lie collapsed where he lay. And either he or one of the angels has neatly folded the head cloth in a separate place. Now you may have read in past years or this year, you may have read a text which is circulating on the internet about the meaning of that folded head cloth that is put apart and that it supposedly meant to the Jews that the master was saying that he would be coming back. That's all just made up. It's not true. Be careful what you read on the internet. Jesus is gone. In fact, he's gone before the angels arrived. The angels didn't have to roll back the stone to let Jesus out. Later on in the same chapter, he comes into the room when the door is locked. The walls cannot stop our Lord in his glorified state. But the angels descend and they roll back the stone to show to the world the gospel in three words. He is risen. The tomb is empty. Is that true? Is that a fact? Or is it a pious fiction that we Christians just dearly would love to be true? Is it something that we make up to comfort ourselves as we try to handle life in a, in a world which is hard? I worked many years ago for a short time in Quebec with a Roman Catholic priest. And as we had our discussions, it became evident that he did not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead. He considered it a useful myth, a comforting myth. Jesus rises, he said, every time somebody accepts Jesus into their heart, every time somebody chooses to live a life of love. And so it's just a parable. What does Paul say? What does the Holy Word of God say? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is well known. Paul says it in no uncertain terms. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. The apostles are false witnesses. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If the resurrection is not historical fact, then we're wasting our time following the Lord Jesus. It's a waste of time to follow a dead and decomposed Savior. But praise God, the Christian faith is not subjective and not based on our emotions or what we would like to be true. The Christian faith is based on the solid facts of the great redemptive acts of God in history and the resurrection in the historical writings is one of the most clearly and well attested to facts in historical writings. There are many, many witnesses from all kinds of angles 
And to just give you one indication, there are many, the delightful mess of different perspectives and emphases and sometimes even seeming contradictions that we have in the gospel accounts do not bear the marks of a story called by co-conspirators. If a detective at a crime scene interviews the witnesses and they all use exactly the same words in exactly the same way, he knows they've gotten together to make up the story that they're going to tell the cops. It's not what we see in the Gospels. We see this delightful diversity of perspectives and descriptions, and some evangelists leave some things out and put other things in, and others vice versa. And that's typical of true and authentic eyewitness reports. There's something else that strikes us here in our text. There's something you wouldn't do if you were making up a story and you wanted people to believe it. If you're going to make something up in first century Palestine, you do not use a woman as your first and principal witness. Because the testimony of a woman in the first century Judaism was not acceptable under Jewish law. It had no weight. So the last thing the apostles would have done is give us Mary as the first witness of the resurrection. Not if he's making up the story. And so as we look at our verses here, our text, it's not easy to figure out the exact timeline of the events of resurrection morning if we look at all the different gospels. What we do know is there are, there's a lot of running. Did you notice that as we read through the text? Mary comes with the other women, and what is she seeking? She's seeking a corpse, and then she takes one look. She sees the stone rolled. She has a quick look inside. There's no body. They've taken the body. Where have they taken it? There could be grave robbers. That's a common occurrence, actually, in those times. We even have archaeological evidence. There was an inscription found in the area of Nazareth from this time in history. The emperor ordering capital punishment for grave robbers in Palestine. So it was a thing that happened. So have there been grave robbers? Have the enemies of, of Christ and the disciples, have they taken the body? So Mary takes off running to tell Peter and John. The other women stay behind for a little bit. And, they, and Mary tells the apostles, we don't know where they have laid him. And then the other women enter into the tomb. We learn that from Luke. They talk with the angel. They run off in fear. And eventually they meet Jesus as well. And they run off to tell the disciples. And Mary in the meantime has told Peter and John. And they run to the tomb. And Mary follows after. And there's general consternation running back and forth. And there's fear that someone has stolen the body. But when Peter and John get there, they can tell that something's odd because it's obviously not grave robbers. There's a neatness. The linen cloths are still there. The body has not been taken away because why would they take the cloths off? Why would they unwrap the body and leave? Why would they neatly fold the headcloth? It doesn't make sense. And so Luke records Peter going home wondering. It doesn't make sense. What's happening here? But look at what we see in verse 8. John saw and believed. What did he believe? How did he believe? Well, it's obviously very faint stirrings of belief because as we read in the other Gospels, when the women go and tell the disciples, the men do not believe them. 
They consider it an idle tale. And we don't read about John correcting them and saying, no, 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 I've seen it now. I can, I can guarantee it's true. Look at verse 9. As yet they did not understand the Scripture. They had not accepted the truth of the Word of God as it was written in the ancient prophecies. And as it was taught to their faces by the Word incarnate, by Jesus himself, they did not understand, they did not accept, they did not believe. And Jesus corrects them on that. He upbraids them for their hardness of heart. Look at verse 29 of our chapter. When he's speaking to Thomas, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John adds, perhaps a little sheepishly in verse 30, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Don't be like us, apostles. We had to see to believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so there is Mary. We see her there in verse 11. The apostles, John and Peter, have left, and she's weeping. She's weeping. She's weeping on Easter Sunday. She's weeping at the empty tomb. She's weeping on Resurrection Day. A new age has dawned. And she can't see it. And there were these two angels. And Matthew tells us their appearance was like lightning. And their clothes as white as snow. When the guards see these angels, the guards fall down as dead men. They faint. These big tough Roman soldiers, they faint of fear. But Mary doesn't notice anything about these angels. She is seeking a dead Jesus to put costly spices on his corpse. That's what she's focused on. Where have you put his body? She is so caught up in her grief and her misery and her suffering that she does not see Jesus himself. And how often aren't we like that? We're so caught up in our misery that we do not hear the gentle voice of our Savior speaking to us. That we do not see him when he is with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Woman, why are you weeping? The Lord Jesus repeats the question of the angel. You know, so often we're focused on pain. We're focused on fear. We're focused on affliction. And so we weep instead of worshiping. And Christ adds, whom are you seeking? Not what, but whom? There's the same old answer. They have taken away my Lord. Where is the body? And then what happens in verse 14 and 15? Or verse 16 now. 
is the greatest meeting scene in all of literature. Just a meeting of two words. Jesus says, Mary. She turns and sees him and says, teacher. And they're speaking Aramaic. Jesus says to her, Mariam. That word is enough. Even in his glorified state, he makes himself known through his word. She'd kind of looked back a little bit. She saw him. There was a man standing there. She thought, that must be the gardener. We have to understand that before his resurrection, the Lord Jesus had no form or comeliness that we might desire him. But now he has a glorified body. He is the most handsome of men. He's the same Jesus. It's the same person, but he is glorified. And so Mary just simply doesn't process as she kind of glances backwards and sees someone there. It must be the gardener. But when he speaks, when he speaks in Aramaic, which is their heart language, then she hears, and then she turns around, and then she sees, and then she answers in the same language, Rabboni. That's all it took, just hearing him speak. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He calls his sheep by name, and they recognize his voice. My sheep. Hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Mary had been looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. She'd been looking for a corpse. She found the glorified Savior. She was looking for death. She found life. She has in front of her the living incarnate word of God and she didn't find him, but she was found by him. So many millennia before this scene, another woman, another garden, it all started there. Eve was looking for life and she found death. Eve heard the word of God and turned from it and chose not to believe it. But now Mary in this garden, she literally embraces the word of God. She clings to the word of God. She worships the word of God incarnate. Rabboni is a title of glory. It means great teacher, Lord. And in some of the Jewish literature of the time, it is even used as a title for God himself. Brothers and sisters, this scene of Jesus with Mary, the most prominent of the women who supported Jesus, and the first one to be a witness of his resurrection, the scene tells us a lot about God. Woman was the first to sin, and woman was the first to believe. 
woman was the first to reject the word. And woman was the first to embrace the word. This is not by chance. The Lord Jesus deliberately reveals himself first to Mary and to the other women. This is God's grace. This is God's love. This is God's mercy. That he puts the women first. What about the men? Where are the men? Well, look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And from the evangelist Luke, we learn that they said, what? No, we don't believe you, Mary. What you're saying seems to us an idle tale. The men get it wrong again. There in the first garden at the fall, man listened to the voice of his wife in unbelief and brought down curse. Shouldn't have listened, but he did. And now he should listen, but he doesn't. Now they don't listen to the women testifying to the truth of the living word. The men got it all wrong. They were locked in a room in fear and unbelief while the women are worshiping the risen Lord. And brothers, this calls for humility and great respect for our sisters in Christ. And so there is a message of Mary. She is an apostle to the apostles. Apostle just means someone who is sent. Jesus sent her. That's the verb in Greek to send, apostello, I send. So Jesus sent her to the apostles with a special message. The other women have a message too that they have to give to the apostles. We learned that in the other gospels. He is risen, go meet him in Galilee. But Mary has to tell them this, go to my brothers. See that in verse 17? Go to my brothers. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Go to my brothers. Jesus has never called his disciples brothers before. He's called them friends, but not brothers. And so we see that the essence of the curse has been taken away. The essence of the curse is a broken relationship with God. And now Jesus is saying, you are restored. You are welcome home. You are part of the family of God. You are my brothers. Mary was looking for a dead Jesus. But she found a risen Lord Jesus, her brother, her reconciler, and in him a God who is no longer judged but rather a loving father. So on this Resurrection Sunday, the Holy Spirit puts before you the same question. Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? 
Are you looking for a Jesus who is safely dead and buried? An interesting fact of history come and gone? A Jesus who offers nothing, who demands nothing? A Jesus who is dry and dusty and dogmatic and safely wrapped up in the theological constructions of the confessions? A harmless Jesus. So many spend their lives looking around, poking around the tombs, looking for a dead Jesus, a Jesus who is safely dead, so that he doesn't demand anything from us, so that we can continue in our dead worldliness or our dead orthodoxy or our dead progressivism. So many of us are content with the Jesus that we know about, that we talk about, but not a Jesus who comes to us and who speaks to us and who demands our total commitment and our total worship. And so many have not heard him speak the word and have not turned and have not seen him. So many have not turned and heard and seen the Jesus who is living and present, who is the power of the world to come, who is the light in the darkness, who is the life and healing to a world of death and brokenness. Brothers and sisters, we need to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And to know him, we need to hear him. And today again, the glorious, risen, living Lord Jesus is speaking to you in the gospel. One word from Jesus turned Mary's world upside down, turned despair into hope and darkness to light. Jesus speaks to you now, even now, in the darkness and despair and brokenness of your sin and suffering. Jesus says to you, I am the light of the world. And in the experience of the curse that the wages of death is sin, sorry, the wages of sin is death, and everything touched by sin is dead and dying, Jesus speaks to you. And says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because the curse has been undone. The power of sin has been broken. Death has been vanquished. A new age has dawned. And Jesus is my brother. And God is my loving father. And so hear his voice and turn and Flee to him and embrace him and cling to him in faith and know him and the power of his resurrection. He is the light and the darkness of our hearts. He is the healing and the restoration to the brokenness of our lives. So we are in restored relationship with Christ, our brother. We're experiencing then our other relationships restored by the power of his spirit. With God the Father, with our families, with our husband, with our wife, with our brothers and sisters. What it looks like to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Are you seeing that in your life? In a world under God's judgment and righteous wrath, we have comfort. Your loving Father in Christ is not angry with you. Your sins are paid for. And the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his spirit is working new hearts and renewing our lives 
and renewing, making all things new until the entire universe will be renewed and there will not be even the slightest remnant or remembrance of sin and its destructive consequences. That's what the Lord is doing now. And in that hope and in the power of the resurrection life, let us go forward from this moment and from this day. Let us walk in the power of the resurrection life until we see him face to face. Amen.